What's up, guys? Brian Ratliff here. Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast. Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the Word of God. In your opinion, what is the greatest news story of the 21st century so far? As I have been wrestling with that question in my mind, I came across an article and there's the top 25 greatest or most well-known famous news stories since the year 2000. And high on that list is, of course, 9-11 and 2001. I'm sure you remember exactly where you were when these terrorists hijacked those planes and flew them into the Twin Towers, and it literally shocked the world. I know the internet was around then, but it was before the time of what we know is the internet, and literally that news story went viral without the help of Facebook and social media. Everybody all over the world through the avenue of CNN or Fox News or local news outlets, we saw the events with our own eyes on camera. And that could be one of the greatest events so far that has taken place in the 21st century. Well, on this list also, it had the year 2004. And 2004 might sound like just an ordinary year for you, but actually that was the year that Facebook was invented. In fact, Mark Zuckerberg in a college dormitory at Harvard University began Facebook. It started out as just an organization to be for kind of special colleges like Harvard. And then it morphed and evolved into universities all over America, and now it is literally one of the most popular websites in the world. And in fact, in 2017, they crossed a milestone of 2 billion users who are on Facebook. Just imagine, that is one-fourth of the entire population of the world uses Facebook. And I also came to a, to a stat that somebody said that if Facebook was sold today, it would probably go for several hundred million dollars. And in fact, perhaps even more to this day. On high on that list also was the year 2007. Now that may not be an ordinary or an extraordinary year for you, but in 2007, a guy by the name of Steve Jobs and Apple launched the very first iPhone. How many of you have an iPhone here today? I do. If, if you don't have an iPhone, the altar's open, man. <laughs> you can repent. Just kidding, that's a joke. But seriously, in 2011, the Apple, the organization, they launched an iPhone, and now people use it all over the world. But, but interesting enough, in 2018, they would have never known that Apple would have reached a milestone to be known as a company, the first company to be worth $1 trillion. Now, as we think about the 21st century, and the greatest news story that has taken place so far, there is a possibility of a greater news story that could result. Now, don't put words in my mouth. I'm saying it's a possibility. 
We believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. So it is possible that Jesus could return in this century. And so today, I want you to understand this, that, that I know that, that the September 11th attacks, it was, it was quite a day, and everybody knew about it. I know that in 2004, when Facebook was, was birthed, it was, a, it was a big day now that we look back. And when Steve Jobs and Apple launched that iPhone, it was a big day, and it's a big company today. But I want you to know this, that, that an event is coming that is going to rattle the cages of every event that's ever taken place, and that is the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so today, the title of my sermon is Four Words. And if you walk away with anything from Revelation 19, you should walk away with these four words. The King is coming. In fact, that is the theme of the book of Revelation. King Jesus is coming again. And he's coming to establish his kingdom and to judge this world. In fact, Scripture teaches us that Christ will return personally. He will appear as the Son of Man. He will return literally and visibly. In fact, Acts chapter 1, when Jesus sent it up to glory, that, that angel we, we read about there says that, hey, the same one that went up is the same one that's going to come back down. He will come suddenly and dramatically. He will come on the clouds of heaven. In fact, he said that in Matthew 24, and Daniel chapter 7 speaks about that as well. Scripture teaches us that he will come in a display of absolute, total, marvelous glory. He will come with all of his mighty angels. He will come with his bride, that is you and me, known as the church. He will return to the Mount of Olives from which he ascended. And he will return in triumph and in great victory. As I've been meditating in verses 11 through 21 the last several days, I wrote down a key thought that I want to relay to you that maybe you can write down or take note of. But here's the main thought of not just this section of Scripture. Really, I believe this is the entire theme of the whole book of Revelation and really the entire theme of Bible prophecy or the theological term we call eschatology. The king is coming to judge an unbelieving, Christ-rejecting world. The king is coming to judge an unbelieving, Christ-rejecting world. That is the whole point of the book of Revelation. The whole point of this book is to remind us that judgment day is coming to this world. And the world and Satan has had his heyday and will have his heyday in the days to come. But one day, give God all glory and praise. Jesus will split the eastern sky, plant his foot on the Mount of Olives, defeat the Antichrist and his army, and establish his earthly kingdom. So my question I want to ask us all today as I've been wrestling in this passage is what will the return of Christ look like? And I want to share three thoughts with you. In verses 11 through 16, I want to share with you first of all today this thought. The king is coming in the clouds with glorious power. The king is coming in the clouds with glorious power. We can go back and we can study Matthew chapter 24. We can go back and we can study the prophets of the Old Testament. And when you assemble all these uh, passages of Scripture together, what you will discover is King Jesus will return in the clouds with glorious power. Look at verse 11. The Bible says, in fact, here's a transitional scene in John's apocalypse. Remember, so many times we saw in the English Bible where the phrase says that, and I saw, and I saw, and I saw again, and I saw, and I saw, and I saw. That is a transitional phrase taking us from John seeing this event in the 
dream and vision to now seeing a new event within the entire vision. And so John now sees heaven open. What a sight he saw. And what a sight this world will see when this takes place. And he says, behold, a white horse. So in, in, in this vision, he sees that heaven opens up. Imagine the portals of heaven or the doorway of heaven opens up. And there, the first thing he sees out of the doorways and portals is a white horse. And the Bible says that and he sees one sitting upon that white horse. And this one is called faithful and true and called the word of God. As we read verses 11, 12, and 13, here's a thought I want to share with you about the king is coming in the clouds with glorious power. Check this out. When Christ returns, his appearance will be glorious. I'm talking about glory in which you and I have never seen before. In fact, glory that can only be typified going back to the birth of Christ when the angels sang and the shepherds came to witness that great scene. The glory that can only be described as when Jesus rose from the grave. And now we see that this glory, it's all going to come into this crescendo of effect. That here in this moment, the full glorious splendor of God or the Son of God is going to be manifested for all the world to see. And in the middle of all this, the Bible says that on this horse, on this white horse, is one who is called Faithful. This literally means that he is the trustworthy, faithful God. Then the word true. I decided to look it up in the, in the original Greek language, what the word true means. You might appreciate this. The word true in Greek, it means true. <laughs> it doesn't take rocket science to learn the word true. It means something that is trusted and trustworthily true. And so Jesus, he is the trustworthy, faithful absolute true son of God and he is the one who's coming you got to understand so far we've seen that an antichrist arose on the scene trying to become kind of a faithful person for the world to look to trying to become a source of truth but in all reality we understand that he is the unfaithful source of not truth and then the bible says that he comes in righteousness to judge and make war now, I'm not a huge fan of war. It's just a personal opinion. I don't like war. I think war should be the very last resort, and we should try to use every other means to overcome the difficulties in society before ever coming to the concept of war. But I will say this, that the book of Ecclesiastes tells us that there's a time for peace and there's a time for war. And the Bible tells us here that, that this is a war that I cannot be against. This is a war that is going to be led by King Jesus at the charge to go and annihilate the enemy of God. And when we look at this event in the future, we see that this is a holy and righteous war. I know it sounds weird for me to say it that way, but this is a holy and righteous war because God, the Son of God, is going to put an end to the works of darkness on this earth for all. Except for the one final heyday that Satan will have at the end of the millennium. And we'll get into that in chapter 20. But then look in verse 12. It's kind of like a, a, a scene that John saw in chapter 1. It's almost like verbatim. John is repeating what he saw in the vision of Christ in chapter 1 again here when he sees heaven opened and the Son of God coming. Now, by the way, nowhere in this passage does it mention Jesus. 
but it mentions names that remind us of who this one is. And there's no other character that can meet this description throughout all of Scripture. And so the Bible says, His eyes were as flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. Now, this is the diadem crown. This is, the, this is that royal crown, not the victor's crown, that he is going to be clothed with great royalty when he comes out of those portals of heaven. And then the Bible says that, that he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. Now, don't even try to ask me or any other preacher what this name was, because Scripture's clear. Nobody knows this but Jesus. But what it does is it reminds me of the mysterious aspect of God. And here's a thought that came to my mind as I was studying this passage. We could spend our entire lives studying God's word and we'll never understand all of what God has revealed to us in scripture about himself. But then when we get to heaven, check this out now. When we get to heaven, we'll get to spend all eternity discovering new aspects about God that he did not reveal to us in his word. In fact, I believe that God gave us his canon, Genesis Revelation, for us to study and try to get to know him. And of course, we're not going to understand it all, but he only gave us what he gave us in his word, what he thought mankind could understand in our finite mind. And when we get to glory, I'm telling you, it's going to be like a, a little kid at a candy shop and going here and see, oh, look at this new piece of candy. Look at this and look at that. And we'll get to see and discover all of these aspects about the holy God of the universe. And maybe one day he'll reveal what that name was. Right here, mentioned in verse 12. Verse 13, it tells us about this aspect of his appearance of glory, that he is clothed with a garment or vesture dipped in blood. A lot of chatter in the, in the theologian corner about what exactly this means. And so some are going to say this, this is a reference to the blood that Jesus shed on Calvary. Some are going to say it's the reference to the martyrs that will shed their blood in honor. And then some, and this was the one I kind of lean towards, is the blood of his enemies that he will slay here in this chapter. Now, wh whichever one it is, we can't be ultimately dogmatic. But I thought about this, that if you're not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ that he shed on the cross 2,000 years ago, then you will reap the wrath of God. For all eternity. And then it says, and his name is called the Word of God. Now remember who's writing this. John is writing this book on the island of Patmos around 95 AD. But this was not the only book that John wrote. We also believe that he wrote the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John chapter 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. So he calls Jesus the Word. And then in the book of 1 John, he calls him not just the word, but the word of life. And then here in Revelation chapter 19, he calls him the word of God. So this is obviously Jesus. And he is the one that he spoke about in Matthew 24, that he is going to come in great glory with his angels and with you and me. When Christ returns, his, his appearance will be glorious. But, but then look at verse 14. In verse 14, I thought about this. When Christ returns, his army will be clothed with holiness. In verse 14, the Bible speaks about this army that's going to be surrounding him and following him and coming out through the portals of heaven with him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. No matter how much I try, there's no way I can live a perfect life, thought, word, and deed. Now, I can try. I can do my very best. But my very best will always end up in failure. But there will come a day, my friends, when we will be transported from this 
body of flesh and to a glorified body that will have no more effects by sin. And so I believe that it's in this state that we're looking to right here in verse 14 where we will be with Christ in a new body and there charging along the forces of darkness with him. And we will be in, in holiness, because, in complete holiness because we're with Christ and we are new. But now look at verses 15 and 17. The Bible says, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. Remember, in verse 13, he is called the word of God. Remember, the king is coming. The first thought here in these first several verses is the king is coming in the clouds with glorious power. And here the thought about the word of God, of Jesus being the word, and out of his mouth his word is spoken like a sharp sword. It gives the connotation of the omnipotence of God. And his word has omnipotent power. Look at verse 15. It says, and out of his mouth goes a, a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And that he shall rule with the rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Don't get too confused about the this symbolic nature of this passage. Here we understand that in the Roman culture, they would have a white horse when they were going into a battle to conquer. And here we see that Jesus, in a sense, is seen. John sees him like a Roman um, um, captain of his army marching into battle with his army and they're going and and the roman soldier in the army they would have their swords they would have their bows and arrows they would have their cannons but here his piece of warfare is his mouth his word now i do find it interesting it was the word of god the spoken word of god that brought creation into this world that is when we go back to the book of genesis jesus the son of god spoke the world into existence it is the spoken word of God that brings us salvation and the written word of God that brings us salvation. Romans, remember what he said in Romans? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And then it will be the spoken word of God that will bring execution and condemnation to this world in the days to come. God's word is so powerful that it's able to speak the world into existence. It's able to give us life and it's able to bring into us the concept of the new birth and it's able to bring judgment to those who reject the new birth. So if you're here today and you have not submitted to the authority of Jesus Christ and have not made him your personal Lord and Savior, my friend, today is the day that you need to do that. Or you, in a sense, will be smitten throughout all eternity, by the judgment of God. And then, in verse 16, the Bible says, on his vesture or his garment and on his thigh is a name written, and it's these words, King of kings and Lord of lords. My friends, he is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And when Christ returns, his authority will be marvelous. He will show the Antichrist who's boss. He will show the false prophet who is boss. And he will show the dragon or Satan who is boss. The king is coming in the clouds with glorious power. What will the return of Christ look like? Well, in verses 11 through 16, we've seen how he is going to come in glorious power in the clouds. But remember our key thought today. The king is coming to judge an unbelieving Christ-rejecting world. And he is. Scripture teaches us that. But now let's look at verses 17 to 18. 
I want to share with you a second thought today. Not only the king is coming in the clouds with glorious power, but secondly, from verses 17 and 18, the king is coming to judge this world with righteous honor. The king is coming to judge this world with righteous honor. Look at verse 17. As I read verse 17, I think about this. There will be no escaping the judgment of God. As a child, I would try to wiggle my way out of discipline for my parents. Because I knew that I had an old-fashioned whooping coming my way. If I did not submit to the lordship of Mr. Ratliff, if you will, in that house. I had to obey his rules because I lived in his house. And there were times when I would try to wiggle my way out of that furious judgment of my father. But I couldn't wiggle. I couldn't jiggle <laughs> my way out of that. Just as a child like you and me, we try to wiggle our way out of those disciplinary actions of our parents. This world, I, I imagine, is going to try to wiggle their way out. But they're not going to be able to. Nobody can escape the judgment of God. And that's what verse 17 is teaching us. Look at this. It says, I saw an angel standing in the sun. And the Bible says that this angel who's standing in the sun, he cries with a loud voice and he says to, he speaks to the birds of the air. And he says, come gather yourselves together to the supper of the great God. Now do not misunderstand this great supper with the marriage supper of the Lamb. Total different. This is a supper of condemnation. In fact, I believe it coincides with Revelation chapter 14 and verse number 20, where the Bible speaks about the wine press of God's wrath going from Dan all the way to Beersheba. That is 180 miles from the northernmost part of Israel to the southernmost. And here in Revelation chapter 14 and verse number 20, it speaks about the idea that there will be gobs and gobs and gobs of bodies and blood all over these 180 miles about four feet deep now if that verse in revelation 14 20 is literally true which i lean towards it is or if it's not we'll find out one day for sure but it gives the idea that it is because in revelation 19 verse 17 and 18 the bible says that these dead carcasses are going to be eaten by fowls and birds and they're being commanded by God or this angel on behalf of God to go and eat the flesh. That's what these types of scavenger birds do. When they see that dead raccoon or that, that dead possum or that dead groundhog or whatever that dead animal is on the side of the road, you always see them around eating. And that's what it's going to be like. Just imagine this in your mind. All these birds flying in the air, zooming down and eating the dead flesh from the judgment of God. And then in verse 18, it speaks about not only how these people are not going to escape God's judgment, but there will be no exempting the judgment of God. I thought it was interesting here that the Bible speaks of kings and captains and mighty men. These are some of the most prominent people in society. And oftentimes, because they have resources and wealth and, hey, they know the right people, they can commit a crime and get out of the punishment. But in this case, 
There is no exemption from God's judgment. It doesn't matter if you're a king of one of the ten nations in the end times prophecy kingdom. You will reap this judgment. It doesn't matter if you're a captain serving under the king or if you're just a mighty man of war. Then it goes on to speak about how even the, the flesh of the horses they're riding on. And the Bible even says here, I, I thought about this. Not only we won't escape or we can't exempt, but there will be no discriminating with the judgment of God. Here it says, it says, both free and bond, both small and great. In fact, my flesh would like to see some type of discrimination here. That is to where people can get out of God's judgment here. But the only way is through the cross. My friend, it's not through the amount that you have in the bank account or, or, or how much you own or how much cash or, or your net worth or anything like that or, what, or if you're a politician or a president or you have all those different titles. It doesn't matter today. It only matters if you have, are a born-again child of God and you have believed that Christ and Him alone is enough for salvation. That's the only way you can be exempt and escaped and, and go through a discrimination process of the judgment of God. But in this case, these people are refusing to repent, are refusing to believe, and refusing Christ and rejecting Him. And so as a result, they will reap the righteous judgment of God. Earlier in this chapter, chapter 19, we saw the four hallelujahs of God's judgment upon the great whore of Babylon, that system that will arise in the end times. We saw that they were shouting hallelujah because that great day of God's wrath, the day of the Lord has finally come and we can praise God right now because listen, I know it sounds weird to think about this in the future of all, the, of all this catastrophe and judgment coming, but this is God at work defeating darkness and he is honorable and worthy to declare this type of righteous judgment. Just as a judge would declare somebody who's guilty of a crime in the court of law to be sentenced to prison for life, here the Bible says that God is the one seated in that courtroom holding that hammer. And he hits that hammer down and he declares this world guilty and sends his condemnation to the world. And that brings us to the battle of Armageddon. Verses 19, 20, and 21. What will the return of Christ look like? Well, the king is coming in the clouds with glorious power. The king is coming to judge this world with righteous honor. But now in these last three verses, I want to share with you thirdly and finally today of what the second coming of Christ will look like. The king is coming to destroy the enemies who oppose him forever. The king is coming to destroy the enemies who oppose him forever. Verse 19. Remember in verse 11, it says, He sees heaven opened, 
And now he sees kind of another transitional phrase in verse number 19. He now, his, now his attention is not necessarily on heaven itself but, it, but it's, and Christ coming out of the clouds, but now his attention is back to the earth and he sees the beast that is the Antichrist and the kings of the earth. It is the confederation nations that have gathered together. And the Bible says their armies, they've come together to make war against him who sits on this horse that came out of heaven and his army will be with his army along with, most likely, the mighty angels. In fact, what's the future of, of the church? No matter where you land on the rapture, the rapture will take place. Then, the return of Christ will take place, and we'll return with him, and then we'll reign with him in the millennium. That is what we get to look forward to, the rapture, the return, and the reign. All to honor Christ. But here in verse number 19, I believe that when Christ returns, he will see his enemies. He will see face to face like I'm looking at you and you're looking at me. He'll see them all. He'll see the beast, the Antichrist. He'll see the false prophet. He'll see these kings and these nations and the multitudes of armies that have gathered together to fight the one that they can't defeat. <laughs> They'll have perhaps millions of people in this battlefield of Megiddo, this place called Armageddon. And it doesn't matter how many Satan has on his side. All Jesus needs is the word of his mouth to defeat this army. But then in verse number 20, I believe that not only is when Christ returns, he will see his enemies, but, but in verse number 20, when Christ returns, he will silence his enemies. He's going to see them, and then he's going to silence them forever. I'm sure that in the middle of this battlefield, they're going to be mocking him and scoffing him and ridiculing him and, and saying all crazy things about him. But in one moment, Christ is going to silence these enemies. Look at verse 20. It says, he, the beast was taken. This is the one that we call the Antichrist that, that arose through these confederation of nations. And there he, he took power. And there he broke his peace treaty with Jerusalem. And there he wreaked havoc upon the earth. And, and along with the, the assistance of the, frost, of the false prophet, there they deceived the world and the kings. And there to worship the Antichrist. And there to receive his mark so they could not buy and sell. And there we see that anybody who received that mark would, would be damned for all eternity. But here, the deception that's going on will no longer be taking place from this individual again. And he's going to silence him on the earth. And then the Bible says that both of them, they'll be the first ones to inhabit the lake of fire. Now, let's just pause right here. We understand that when we are talking about eternity, we say, hey, if you die today, would you go to heaven or hell? And yes, I understand that is absolutely true. But if we want to get super technical about it, hell is a temporary holding place for the dead uh, who don't know Christ. And all of them in the future, in Revelation 20 and, and beyond, after the great right throne judgment, will be thrown and cast into the lake of fire along with hell. So we believe that they're going to go to hell, but technically speaking, the lake of fire. And so the first ones to inhabit the lake of fire is the Antichrist and the false prophet. And the dragon will join them in Revelation 20. He's going to silence them by throwing them into the eternal prison. But then look at verse 21. For all those who remain, when Christ returns, he's not just going to see his enemies and silence his enemies. He will slay his enemies. Just like a commander-in-chief in an army would march out 
and defeat his enemies through victory, Jesus will conquer. Look at verse 21. The Bible says, notice this is not my words here. These are challenging for any of us to read, by the way. But God is worthy to do this. It says, And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth. My speculation here is that in, the war, in a battle, in the ancient battle, they would take a sword and they would thrust it into somebody. And it could be a slow, agonizing death. My speculation is that this, death, this type of death will be instant. And in one moment, just as, just as God can make our hearts start beating, in one moment, God can make our hearts stop beating and our lungs stop breathing. And here, the Bible says that all these birds came and they feasted on the dead flesh. The king is coming to destroy the enemies who oppose him forever. The king is coming to judge this world with righteous honor. And the king is coming in the clouds with glorious power. My friends, the king is coming to judge an unbelieving, Christ-rejecting world. In conclusion, we've seen so far in this chapter that Jesus has mentioned a title by, uh, that's mentioned here in this chapter. He is faithful and he is true. And he is the word of God. He is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. But throughout all scripture, he is known by many different titles. And in the book of Revelation, I counted up, there, there might be more, but, but I counted 38 specific titles about Jesus. He's the faithful and true witness. He is the first begotten of the dead. He is the prince of the kings of the earth. He is the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the son of man. He that lives and was dead. He that holds the seven stars. He who walks in the middle of the golden candlesticks. He who has the sharp sword with two edges. He is the son of God. He is the one who searches the reins and hearts of mankind. He is the one that has the seven spirits of God. He is the one that has the seven stars. He is the one that is holy and true. He is the one who has the key of David. He is the one that opens doors that no man can shut. And he is the one that shuts doors that no man can open. He is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. He is the Lord. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the root of David. He is a lamb as it had been slain. He is the lamb, the Lord of lords, the king of kings, faithful and true, the rider on the white horse, the word of God, Christ, the Lord God of the holy prophets, the beginning and the end, the bright and morning star. Listen, his name is Jesus, and he is my Lord, and he is my God, and he is the soon coming king. But my question for you today is, is he your Lord and is he your God and is he your soon coming king that you will return with? My friends, the king is coming. What's up, guys? Brian here again. Just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRalph.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. I'm gonna walk 
Keep the faith.